Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are looking at the story of the fall in Genesis 3 with Dr. John Walton, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and the author of many books on the Old Testament, including The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Dr. Walton, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Dennis. So let's start, uh, before we get to Genesis 3, could you give us an overview of Genesis 1 and 2? Sure. I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. Uh, when I look at the creation narrative in Genesis 1, the seven days, my view is that it's not referring uh, to the material universe, it's referring to ordering the cosmos. I find this to be a regular feature of ancient Near Eastern texts. And when I look at the biblical material, I notice that it has very little to say about material objects coming into existence physically. Uh, so for instance, day and night is day one, and space is day two, and the growing of food is day three, and on and on. And so the focus, as I see it, is not on material objects. Certainly, God did create material objects. My question is not about what God did or did not do. My question is about what is the focus of the narrator? Because, of course, it's the narrator who is the provider of Scripture. Uh, God speaks through the narrator, and it's Scripture that is inspired. So I take it as uh, representing the most important creation act is creation of order. Then you ask, what is the purpose of ordering the world? You order it for something. And I find that in day seven, where God is ordering it uh, to be a place where he will dwell in relationship with the people that he has created. He has created them in his image to, um, to bring them into the process where they also will be order bringers alongside of him. It's a task that he's given us. So they are image bearers and they are order bringers. That's what God created humanity to be. And so when he rests on day seven, uh, that's not so much disengagement, meaning that he's all done everything now and going to sit down in his recliner chair. Uh, rather, when God rests, he rests on a throne. And so he has ordered it and he sits down to rule. And we are to be participants in his rule. So again, bearers of his image, bringers of his order and participants in his rule. And that that's really the focus and purpose of Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 2 then comes into the garden where God is dwelling among his people in relationship with them. And so we find uh, Adam and Eve brought into the scene. I'm not persuaded that Adam and Eve are the people mentioned in chapter 1, uh, but Adam and Eve are important here. They serve an archetypal role, meaning what happens to them in some sense happens to everyone. Uh, so in that sense, Adam is not alone in being dust. We are all dust. And the Bible says that on numerous occasions. And so that's not biology. That's not chemistry. That's not genetics. That's not a craftsmanship of God. That is the identity of humanity. We are dust. And Eve's identity is also given. She is half of Adam. It's not just a rib that's involved. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so she is from the side of Adam, meaning that they are ontological equals and therefore can work together in the task that God has given them. That particular task is mentioned in 2.15, which is to serve and keep the garden. The garden not as a place where there's dirt and harvesting and planting. The garden is a place of God's presence, sacred space. And so they are like priests in sacred space. And so we have chapter one then dealing with the identity of the cosmos, the place where God is going to dwell among his people in relationship with them. And chapter two is human identity. Who are we? Who are we relative to God? Who are we relative to one another? Who are we relative to the animal world? So these are not so much scientific origins accounts they are identity accounts to tell us what the world is, who we are, and how God fits into it all. All right. So it's always seemed obvious to me that the author goes out of his way to show that this is not to be taken literally in Genesis 3. 
that there's a talking serpent, et cetera, that this is meant to be taken as a tale or mythical. Um, but you say they're not only archetypal, but they're also historical. So could you explain that? Sure. Um, archetype refers to uh, the way that they represent all of humanity. Uh, someone can be a literary archetype and yet be an actual real person. We could talk about Abraham as the archetype of people of faith, and yet he's still a real person. Uh, when I say archetype, I'm referring to a literary interest, not the question of historical reality. So someone can be an archetype, that is, that is the literary interest of the author, and yet still be a real person in a real past. And I don't see any reason not to count Adam that way. Uh, they include him in genealogies. Uh, that's not a definitive statement, but it's one that leans in the direction of bringing him into the historical realm. So I'm, I'm very content to consider Adam and Eve to be real people in a real past, uh, but that in the literature, they serve an archetypal role. The, the reason why some people uh, don't want to think of Adam and Eve as real people in a real past is because that they often assume that if they do that, then you've got a whole scientific, biological, genetic problem to deal with. Um, when I say that they are real people in a real past, that doesn't mean that I necessarily think that they are the first and only ones of the species. Uh, that's another issue and something else to be decided. Uh, so in that sense, if, if I, if in that sense, there's no scientific problem, then I don't see that a lot is lost to consider them real people in a real past. The question of whether we use the term mythological depends a lot on how you define the word mythological. And that has been an ongoing problem. Uh, it's very difficult for scholars to say, I know all of you readers out there think of mythology as X, Y, Z, and I'm going to tell you that's wrong. And you should think of mythology as, as ABC. And people might say, well, okay, I see what you're doing. But then five pages later, they're still thinking of mythology as X, Y, Z. And it becomes very difficult to talk about it in those terms. So that's a semantics problem, really, and a matter of definition. All right. So as far as what's described in Genesis 3, though, would you say that's historical? Uh, Genesis 3 is very tough on that regard. In some senses, I would consider it representing, reflecting something that really happened. The question of what really happened is, you know, is, is a more challenging question. Uh, often we think of reality in terms of what you could capture on a video camera. And I don't think that in the ancient world they would have been so narrow, regardless of whether they had video cameras. They didn't. But that they wouldn't be so narrow that reality is restrictive of what you can see. I think that they would have considered the serpent to be a chaos creature. And if you ask the question, were chaos creatures real? I don't think you'd have a very easy time getting a straight answer from someone in the ancient world. They considered them real in some sense. But for them, mythological and real were not contradictory categories. And so we'd have trouble getting the kind of information we would be, we would be looking for. Uh, people question whether the trees are symbolic or whether they were real, you know, real biological specimens with fruit that had properties and all of those things. Um, and again, I find that that's a, a very difficult question to answer. The important thing about the fruit is that it represents life, one tree, and wisdom, the other tree, and that those two things find their source in God, they're provided by God, and God's the one who gives them as gifts. Um, that's true whether the trees and the fruit are symbolic or not. And so to me, the more important thing is to recognize what they represent and the concepts that they present not the question of whether we've got botany involved or not. So you uh, already started on the serpent. What more can you say about the identity and the nature of the serpent and 
the the passage says that it was one of the wild animals. Yeah, right. Well, the serpent is certainly classified within the the temporal physical world of wild animals, but that's not unusual for chaos creatures. Um, chaos creatures would be any of those creatures on the uh, the perimeter of human existence uh, in the liminal realms. The the coyotes or hyenas that howl in the wilderness, the screech owl that makes those intimidating noises. And even if they could associate them with what we would call zoological species, um, this is not a clean cut division between zoology and mythology. Uh, again, there are a lot of things on the, on the perimeter as in, as in their viewpoint. Uh, certainly some chaos creatures they consider to be composite creatures, but that's not always necessarily the case. Uh, composite creatures certainly are chaos creatures. Um, and by chaos, I, I, I'm not suggesting that they are thereby evil or immoral or something like that. The chaos creature category in the ancient world was uh, mor morally neutral. Um, it was neither good nor evil. Uh, it simply followed its instincts, and that could be uh, that could create some uh, difficulties for human beings. In that sense, it would be in the same category as something like a virus today. A virus has no intention; mm. it simply does what viruses do. It's not moral. It doesn't discern good or evil. It's not giving reward or punishment, uh, and it doesn't think in terms of intentionality. Uh, it simply exists, and it does what its instincts are to do. A tornado, a hurricane, a tsunami, very much the same. They're not moral um, phenomena. And chaos creatures were like that in the ancient world. Uh, there are places where you might be able to identify a little bit more intentionality in what they did, uh, but still there's no morality associated with them. And in that case, I refer to them as creatures of non-order rather than creatures of disorder or evil or something of that sort. But the serpent specifically challenges God's prohibition. The serpent is a wild card. He raises questions. Uh, they are questions that are provocative. Uh, whether he means to deceive or tempt is not clear in the text. He certainly is seeking to raise questions, but that is what provocateurs do. And chaos creatures mm -hmm. can be provocateurs. So in that sense, um, you wouldn't have to uh, accept that he was trying to lead them into evil. He's just mixing up the apple cart. In that sense, he's a catalyst, uh, an agent for, again, provocation, but not an agent of evil per se, if he's in the chaos creature category. So he goes to Eve, not to Adam. Does that tell us anything about the culture and their gender values? No, I'm not sure that it really does. You could follow that path in a couple of different directions, a couple of different opposite directions, and therefore not really resolve it. Uh, I don't know that the text is very much interested in that point, simply because it neither pursues it nor explains it. Uh, perhaps the narrator assumed that the choice would be obvious, uh, to the readers, uh, but I don't even see that as being easily the case. So I think it's rather a narrative choice that he raises it, but it's not clear why he raises it or exactly why the narrative unfolds in that way. So this whole thing focuses on the um, tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what um, really is that? What is going on there? Why is it described that way? Well, when you look at other places in the Old Testament where the knowledge of good and evil as a phrase, not the tree, but just as a phrase, is being used, it's clear that it's used in contexts of wisdom. Um, and Eve, of course, herself identifies it as a tree that is desirable to make one wise. So um, I typically just call it the wisdom tree. You've got the life tree, you've got the wisdom tree. And the next important thing to understand is that wisdom in the ancient world and in the Bible very clearly uh, is the pathway to order. Order is the highest value in the ancient world. 
and therefore to find a way to order is important and wisdom is the descriptive of that way it makes sense why proverbs and ecclesiastes both say that it's the fear of the lord that is the beginning the foundation of or of wisdom because if you don't fear the lord then whatever pathway whatever wisdom you might have is not going to eventuate in order and so in that sense uh, it's a wisdom tree uh, as i said god has created people in his image to work alongside him to bring order that's clear with the language of to subjugate and rule uh, those ideas those are order bringing activities uh, the naming of the animals order bringing activities uh, but the idea was that they were supposed to work alongside god as his vice regents to bring his order now uh, the wisdom that they seize from the tree is wisdom that they want to use to make their own pathway to order to establish an order that's centered on them that brings benefits to them that circles around them and so they seek uh to be order bringers on their own people have often asked why would god withhold wisdom from them and one path of answering that is to somehow consider god jealous and not wanting you to share and he doesn't want people to get too smart and i i don't think that's the way that the bible gives us uh, for following the logic here it's rather he was going to be providing wisdom for them to work alongside him in accomplishing his plans and purposes when they see he did not want them to seize it for themselves for their own plans and purposes for their own agendas for their own benefit and so when they did that that um, brought about their their ouster uh, being driven out of the garden because the garden is a place the center where god is going to pursue his plans and purposes and they chose a different route it's like people who decide that instead of working for the insurance company for instance that they work for that they're going to take all the files and go out and start their own insurance business with all the clients that they had developed inside that business no you can't start your own business okay and what's the significance of the symbolism of the tree and the fruit i think that that's just a a ready symbol for the idea of partaking of something of having something available to them of ingesting it so th that idea we have that imagery other places you know the prophets are told to eat this scroll and that you know they're in that way absorbing what it is that that um, they're going to do uh, speaking for god again they have symbolic value whether they are real trees and real fruit or not and it's the symbolic value that's of the most most importance so for me it's not important to decide whether they are only symbolic or whether they are also real okay and uh interestingly eve um in her conversation with a serpent she says he says don't eat it and don't touch it so it's interesting that she adds that what are your thoughts on that well that's always attracted a lot of attention and well it should it's it's a clear differentiation uh, but we really don't know what's behind that because again the text doesn't tell us uh, maybe is that the way that adam conveyed it to her because he wanted her to be extra careful uh, how how do we think about it uh, she's never rebuked for adding that line um, and so it's very hard to know what to make of that again in many cases the narrator chooses to include a detail but then doesn't explain the detail and as readers we have to figure out is that because he expects us to know or is it because he doesn't want to dwell on it he's got other other directions to go well i guess if god gives us a certain command like do not have do not commit adultery then he expects us to also figure out therefore i'm not going to do this or that or anything else that might lead down that path so mm -hmm. it sounds like the better part of wisdom on her part well it it seems like she's being cautious again she's certainly however come under condemnation for her caution in some interpretive circles okay and also um 
God all along, after he finishes each day, he saw that it was good, right? But it doesn't, the humans don't say anything like that till right before Eve is ready to eat the fruit. She saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. What do you think is uh, going on there? Well, you know, I've already mentioned the concept of order. And for me, that's a very important um, overarching concept that is inherent both in the biblical text and in the ancient world. Uh, It's part of that that when I see the comment that it was good, I don't interpret that to say it was perfect. Uh, Hebrew has other ways it could have said that. Uh, Rather, by designating each step of creation as good, God's saying, that's ordered, that's ordered, that's working the way I want it to, that's functioning, okay? That it's an indication that it's ready to roll, it's ready to work. When uh, he says it's not good for man to be alone, that's not a workable system yet. And so he takes steps to uh, remedy that. When Eve says that the fruit looked good for food and for making one wise, Again, she says, this this fits into what we're looking for, for order. For us, order means we get a big chunk of it, and we can do it with our own interests in mind. So the idea that it looked good to make one wise means that she's persuaded that it offers a pathway to order. But of course, their understanding of order was a lot different than what God had wanted for them. So they were made in the image of God, so they were already like God in a very significant sense. So why was it an, even a temptation um, that they would succumb to for the... Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, when we think of the image of God, uh, again, when I try to understand that as best I can, I see the image of God as being focused on the idea that he gave them a task. Uh, That is, they are representing God in the world. They even stand in for God's presence in some ways, and they're doing the work that he has given them to do. In that sense, I see the image of God as functional in nature. They have a function, a task, a role, a purpose, and that's to be an order bringer. So image bearer and order bringer are really two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, So in that sense, they are like God insofar as they are able to work alongside him to carry out his plans and purposes. Now, the What they want to be like God is the next step up. That is, they want to be able to do what God does as being ultimate order bringers themselves. And that's the way that they're seeking to be like God. It's, it's definitely a promotion and one that they will never qualify for. Uh, but that idea that they want to take on that main role as order bringer. You know, when people go um, self-employed, they say, I want to be my own boss. I want to do it my way. I want to do my thing. And that could be okay in an employment situation, but it's not okay in this kind of scenario. So they're certainly going one step further. Uh, God had given them his image to allow them to work alongside him. They want to step beyond him or step outside of his realm of influence to some extent. So I guess that does say a lot about human nature. Sure. I mean, that's that's really all of us. We first notice it when kids are two, you know. No, I want it my way. I want to do it myself, right? And right. we just find other ways to say the same thing all throughout life, every one of us. Right, and that's why um, in the law you have do not covet, because the two-year-old wants what the four-year-old has, and the four-year-old wants what the ten-year-old has, and right. we're always looking for who has something better than us. So we all want to sing Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. <laughs> so Adam in this whole thing is so passive. Uh, he just goes right along with it. And it's interesting then when God confronts him um, and curses him, that he said, you listen to your wife. So what do you think of Adam's passivity in all this? You know, I wish the text had more for us. But again, I tend to be very cautious in interpretation, not to try to read things in that the text doesn't give me a basis to read in. 
Um, why does the serpent go first to Eve? Why does Eve carry the conversation without Adam intervening? Uh, why does he have no comment at all to make either about the uh, suggestion, you know, of thinking about God differently? Why does he just passively take all very good questions and would intrigue us no end, but without the text's indicator, it's very difficult to tell. When God does mention to Adam, because you listen to your wife, uh, that certainly identifies descriptively the fact of the matter. That's what happened. He listened to his wife. And so that's descriptive. Um, whether that means that under no circumstances should you ever listen to your wife, I certainly wouldn't go that direction. Uh, and I don't think we could infer that from the text. I think or it we doesn't all... mean that he wasn't maintaining his role as head of the household. Well, there's been no indication that he's supposed to be head of the household. Right. Um, right. You know, so, and that's another issue we can we can discuss, but there's there's been no indication of that. Uh, furthermore, of course, uh, I just want to pick up on a word you used. There's no indication that Adam is cursed, no indication that Eve is cursed. The serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed. And in both of those cases, the word it uses mm. for curse is not a hex or a spell or something of that sort. It's a word that pertains to being banished or disenfranchised. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's not even curse is a difficult translation, but we have to recognize that it's not used for either man or woman. Okay, interesting. So uh, let me see. So in Genesis 3, 8 through 11, Adam and Eve hide when they hear the sound of the Lord moving about in the garden. God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Adam claims that they are hiding because they are naked and afraid. God asks, who told you that you were naked? That whole section is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, what do you make of all that? Well, see, it really begins with how you think about their nakedness. Uh, their nakedness is expressed in 2.25, and the word, the Hebrew word is arumim. Uh, that's not just so your listeners can learn Hebrew, but the importance of it is that the very next verse, the serpent is described as arum. The words sound exactly alike. And so there's a, a contrast being set up between Adam and Eve, arumim, and the serpent, arum. Um, the arumim is just a plural form, same, same sound. Um, and through, through many centuries, people have thought that somehow in 225, before the fall, their nakedness was a positive value, uh, that that reflected some ideal, some uh, sense of, of perfection, that they didn't need clothes, there was no shame, etc. And so that's been a very popular view. A more recent view has suggested that in both biblical and ancient Near Eastern terms, nakedness is a sign of primitiveness, not perfection, of an uncivilized, uh, uncultured way, way of living. Uh, mm. And that in this contrast between people and the serpent, uh, they are somewhat naive, they are uncultured whereas the serpent is uh, quite sophisticated and therefore in a position to take advantage of them. Uh, in that light, again, if, if people are intrigued by that way of thinking, uh, in that light, when they gain wisdom that would lead to order, well, civilization is order. And they eat the fruit, their eyes are open, and they say, oh, uh, we're we're primitives where we didn't even realize that one of the first steps you take in order is to oh get some clothes on will you and so mm. that idea that their eyes were open and they knew they were naked is saying that they took a maybe not a quantum leap but at least a major step forward that they have indeed gained this wisdom to what constitutes order and that's one of the first things they notice and so that's why God says, who told you? Because it reflects a wisdom that they did not have before taking of the fruit. Fascinating. Okay, there's probably quite a lot of wide variety of scholarly opinions on that. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. I don't know if the variety is wide, but certainly the view I just gave is, is by far a minority view and a fairly recent one. Okay, fascinating. So, um, as far as the curse, 
So the serpent first, and also if you could mention the promise in there or the proto-evangelion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the serpent, uh, again, curse is problematic. Uh, the idea that he's disenfranchised from the other animals. Again, he's classed among the beasts of the field, and here he's disenfranchised from them. Uh, in other words, he's removed from his community, which in ancient world is a huge thing. People, everything exists in community. And so now he's separated from his community. Uh, so that's the, the nature of that statement. Um, he's made um, he's made docile. Um, the contrast to going on your belly is not standing on your feet. The contrast to going on your belly is being raised up to attack as a serpent does. Um, so that talks about being docile. Um, and uh, eating dust. Of course, serpents don't really eat dust, uh, but their their place, uh, their location is in the dust, and dust, of course, has already been associated with death. They're in the world of death, and so there are those kinds of statements being made. We don't have to suggest that somehow their legs atrophied and fell off. Um, in terms of, that's 314, in terms of 315, um, I'm I'm a little odd man out on this one, um, in that I'm not persuaded that it's a promise. Um, the the first thing that points me in that direction is that the two verbs of of attack are the same, the same Hebrew verb. So let's use something uh, very vague like strike. So the serpent. Uh, strikes at the heel of the human, the human strikes at the head of the serpent. Uh, both of those are potentially mortal blows. If a human being steps on the head of a serpent, it may kill him, may not, okay? If a serpent bites the heel of a human, may kill him, may not, okay? So what we have here is that these, these two now opponents, because there's enmity between them, these two antagonists are exchanging potentially mortal blows, but each direction, it's potentially mortal. In other words, I don't see that it tells you who wins. If mm -hmm. both verbs are the same and both verbs are potentially mortal blows, it doesn't say who wins. If it doesn't say who wins, then there's no point in trying to make the seed of Eve to be a particular seed that's coming centuries and centuries from now, who will be a savior. That doesn't get you anywhere if this doesn't talk about a victory. And so I'm inclined to see this as reference to Eve's corporate seed, human beings. Uh, so her seed is reflected in that. And so that idea then is that the point of the verse would be, number one, this was not a one-off. That is, it's just not kind of an isolated happening that just you can forget it ever happened and things are going to be the same. It's not a one-off, but it's not a game ender. That is, the struggle is going to continue. It's not like everything's doomed now. Uh, there's going to continue to be this hostility and antagonism uh, between the parties. So I don't see that it is indicating some future savior or future deliverance or future promise. And what's what I I feel supported in that by the fact that the New Testament never comes back to it. You know, the New Testament authors go to a great length to try to connect all the dots, you know, for Messiah and for all of the things that Jesus is going to do. And if this is truly, if this truly were the very first announcement of I got of all that Jesus was going to do, I guess I would expect them to make that connection. Right. And right. so if the Old Testament text is not connecting those dots and the New Testament text is not connecting those dots, then I myself feel reluctant to get, connect those dots. Okay. So as far as uh, the man and the woman then, if you don't call it a curse on them, what would you call it? And what's the uh, nature this, of it? Yeah. This is talking about the consequences, not the penalties. Okay. Not the punishment but the results, the consequences of the choice you have made. You know, even in the basic things that were uh, sustaining humanity, fruitful and multiply, right? Here's food that I'm providing for you. Even in those basic things, 
they're going to experience and confront non-order, things that disrupt the order that they're trying to bring. For a woman, uh, it's childbirth. Now, what's interesting there, and many, many translations don't pick this up, although some do, um, that, that word in the first line, I will greatly increase your, let's call it pain for the moment, I'll get back to that, your pain in childbearing. Everybody knows that word is not childbearing. That word is pregnancy, conception. Okay, so pain and conception. Of course, there's the problem. Conception is not painful. So what do you do with this? And most translations have chosen to ignore the fact that this specifically refers to conception, and they've just translated childbearing. I go to the other option. That is that this is not referring to pain. This is referring to anxiety. Okay, now the, that I can bear that out with the study of the Hebrew word. Sometimes it refers to pain, but remember, of course, that pain also brings anxiety. Okay, so this is talking about the anxiety of pregnancy, of conception. Is that real in the ancient world? Oh, so real. Because if a woman couldn't conceive, she could be divorced, snap the fingers. Uh, and she would have nothing. There are no social networks. There's nothing to catch her. If she could not conceive, she had no life. And she was doomed to be uh, a begging pauper. <laughs> there's just nothing for her. And so there's a lot of anxiety about conception. Not only that, of course, but the whole process of pregnancy. The idea of, will I carry my child to term or will there be a miscarriage? Will there be a stillborn? And we have to remember that there is a high level of mother mortality in childbirth. Well, I don't know the real numbers. I've heard numbers like 20%. So you get the great news, you're pregnant, right? Which, which means your life is going to be changed, but it also means in nine months you might be dead. Uh, is there anxiety connected to this? Oh, yes. So labor pains has very little to do in this picture. Do people have anxiety about labor pains? Sure, but it, you know it's not near as big as the anxiety about all of these other things, about the health and life of the child, about conception, about mother living through the process. And so the whole idea is that them choosing their own path of order means that they're going to have to confront this kind of on their own, through their own agencies and whatever they can do. How are they going to bring order for themselves in this very tenuous world of bearing children? The text then goes on to tell her, right, that even though there's this anxiety that surrounds the whole process, what is the solution for that in the world that they have chosen? The solution to that is found that in those tense moments of anxiety, not moments, nine months, right, of anxiety that are going to, to totally dominate her, she's going to seek some solace, seek some support, seek someone who can give her some consolation and confidence she's going to seek out her husband because hmm. he's the one that will do that. So her desire, not a desire to dominate, not a desire to control, not a desire contrary to her husband. I'm sorry, I have great problems with the translators that do that. It doesn't say that. Her desire will be for her husband. What kind of desire is it? A desire for order in the midst of all this anxiety. And so she will desire her husband and he will do what he should do. He will give her support. He will give her that confidence. The word rule there, in Hebrew, that word is almost never negative. It's always considered to be benevolent. And therefore, for the husband to take that role, the role that society gave him, society gave him, for him to play that role is important as a response to his wife. God rules over his people. That is not an abusive, despotic, tyrannical rule. It is a benevolent rule that is for their good. And that's typically how that Hebrew word is used. This is a benevolent word for her good. 
That doesn't mean that every society has to be patriarchal, but Israel's was. And in a patriarchal society, that's the role the husband played. It's not telling you the Bible mandate is for there to be a patriarchal society. It's dealing in the culture in which it works. So her desire will be for her husband to somehow bring order into this tempestuous world of hers of childbearing. And he therefore should play the role of ruling, doing what he was called to do in that society. And then the further consequences, it talks about him having to work the land sure. in a difficult uh, way. Right. So the ground is disenfranchised from people. Therefore, the idea is this is not going to be an easy route. They're going to have to work hard to grow food. And again, there's a lot of anxiety connected with that. Same word. Okay. This Hebrew word, it's avon, occurs only three times in the Bible. Once with regard to the woman and her conception, once with regard to Adam in the ground, and then uh, last time with regard to Noah in chapter five toward the end. Uh, so he's going to likewise have anxiety in the things that he's responsible for. And that too hooks back to the idea of provision of food, which God did for them in the garden. Now they're going to have to do it for themselves. How good are they going to be at doing that? Well, they're going to face significant challenges. So these are descriptive of consequences, not curses and punishments. So um, some of the consequences, as you interpret it, aren't as bad as we usually think. And if it's not even a curse, so that's not as bad as we might think, too. So that's um, it's definitely food for thought. Um, something else that gets debated a lot is what is meant by death. God says in 2.17, in the day you eat of it, you will die. But he doesn't. They don't. So um, what do you think? Well, we need to get better with the Hebrew here. Um, first of all, that phrase in the day doesn't mean by sunset or within 24 hours or something like that. It's a typical Hebrew idiom that means when. So when you eat from it, it's not, it's a temporal adverb, but it's not explicitly a particular time related. Uh, but the more important one is the, the phrase at the end. It's often translated, you will surely die. And uh, I think that that gives us the wrong impression. That suggests in our mind that you'll either, you know, keel over dead uh, when you when you eat it, or the poison will begin to work and you won't live out the day. Uh, but the that expression, and again, this is an unusual uh, Hebrew expression because it uses a grammatical form called the absolute infinitive, which we don't have in English. So it's it's tough uh, as an English reader to understand it. Um, but whenever this combination of the absolute infinitive plus a finite verb of the same root with the root to die is used elsewhere, it refers to being doomed to die or sentenced to death. Hmm. So it's not the second you eat of this, you will keel over dead, surely die. It's rather, when you eat from it, you are dooming yourself to death. You have incurred the death sentence. And of course, that happens when God drives them out of the garden and blocks the way to the tree of life. Without access to the tree of life, they die. So in that sense, uh, it's, it's a sentence of death uh, because they have taken this pathway to wisdom, pathway to order onto themselves. And that can only lead in death. Okay, fascinating. Um, another interesting uh, fact here, um, Eve does not get named by Adam until after the fall. She gets designated uh, in the end of two, where he says she is Isha because she is from Ish. Uh, so there he designates her in relationship to himself. Okay, so that takes place in two, chapter two, before the fall. Um, the naming Chava, that's Eve, life, is reflective on her relationship to coming generations. So they're both designations of role. Um, we could say that the first one is 
um, ontological because it relates the two of them. Uh, the second one is kind of genealogical um, because it relates to that role. But both of those refer to role. People often have said that naming someone is an act of authority. Um, and sometimes it is. Uh, but other times it's a matter of identification, of identifying where they fit and how they belong and what role they play. It's not so much designating that role as sometimes perhaps just recognizing that role. So I think we have to be a little bit more nuanced with regard to that. Um, but uh, that's how I would see the two different namings. All right. And uh, now he has become like one of us, God says. And then Adam and Eve are banished and they're prevented from coming back in. Uh, that's a very, very interesting phrase for God to say. What do you well, think is going on? First of all, it designates them as order bringers. They are now not order bringers working alongside of God. They have become independent contractors to some extent, uh, order bringers on their mm. own. So they are like one of us. Now, the use of the plural, if that's what you're getting at, um, reflects likewise what we saw back in 126 and 27, let us create man in our image. Sure. Uh, we had the plurals there. We have them again in uh, in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, uh, where the plural is used. And those are the three main cases in Genesis. Uh, although we shouldn't ignore the fact that we've also got one in Isaiah 6, uh, who will go for us. Uh, and all of those fit well within the context of the divine council. Uh, this is a well-known concept in the ancient world, and it's uh, well-known in Israel as well, from places like 1 Kings 22, Psalm 82, Job 1 and 2, uh, this idea of a divine council. And so the idea that God is speaking from the council uh, would designate that uh, people are, um, uh, that all of these, this narrative is unfolding in that kind of context. So, but the banishment itself is an, actually an act of protection because if they, in that state, should eat from the tree of life, then they'd really be in trouble, right? Uh, that's why the tree of life is blocked. So they become like one of us with the wisdom side. And now, therefore, we are going to remove the life side. Okay, that's it's kind of the trade-off. They chose one, they lose the other. So theoretically, well, that's a different story. Okay, so we've picked apart um, a bunch of the pieces of the passage. Um, what would you say as a whole, you're looking at, at the whole story of the fall, and uh, do you even think calling it the fall is, um, what's a better way to refer to it, perhaps? Well, typically when we call it the fall, we refer to the fall from grace. I think that's how most people kind of it's a short a shortcut to fall from grace. Um, and if you're going to talk about a fall from grace, you have to ask the question, what, what are you referring to when you talk about a situation of grace in chapters one and two? Um, and I would not be inclined to take that in the Augustinian path that they are perfect uh, in their unfallen state. Uh, in one sense, you could say they're under grace because everything we receive from God is grace. But I think that works against the uh, what's going on there. So I, I'm not sure fall is the best way to describe it. And of course, neither the Old nor New Testament do describe it in that way. Um, I think that what they experience is loss uh, the loss of access to God's presence. Uh, I think that what they have taken for themselves is sort of some self-determination, which they think is good. People typically think of that as good, uh, but it's not good uh, when, you're, when it's regarding what God is doing in the world. But they've taken that self-determination to the extent that they are now considering themselves somewhat autonomous or independent. Um, and so uh, those kinds of things are reflected. I'm not sure that fall 
addresses the most important aspects of what's taking place there. Okay, and what would be, uh, to, to sum up the chapter then, what would you say would be your biggest contribution that yeah. you would make to the scholarship on this? Again, I would feel that this is not, in the Old Testament, it's not construed as here is where sin enters the picture and the need for salvation enters the picture. There's certainly a perspective that could be adopted that would identify those. And the New Testament takes more of that kind of perspective on it. And that's fine. I don't object to that. But I don't think that's how Old Testament sees it. The Old Testament never looks back on chapter 3 again. Never talks about the serpent or the trees or the fruit. Well, it mentions tree of life, but in a different sort of context. Um, so it never comes back to this as sort of the beginning of sin. The text doesn't even use that word. Um, and when the prophets, for instance, talk about the sin problem in Israel, it's not the primordial sin problem. It's the covenant sin problem. They've been unfaithful to the covenant, and that is their mm -hmm. sin. And that's what needs to be remedied. And so this plays a very minor role in Old Testament theology. Uh, what, what would reflect more of the concept that echoes through the rest of the Old Testament, again, ties to this idea of order. We often talk about it as sin because of disobedience. And again, you, that's, that's true. They did disobey. And therefore, they did commit what we would call sin, and appropriately so. But it's here the importance is not so much that disobedience, it's rather what they took. They disobeyed by taking, but they took something. Now that goes against lots of traditional interpretation, which says, oh, he could have just as easily said, don't cross the river, or don't throw the stone, or something like that, and that it was just a test. And I disagree with that deeply. It's not just mm -hmm. a test to see whether they'd obey or not. There's something real and substantial hanging in the balance. The idea of having wisdom to bring about order. They took it for themselves. And now, indeed, God says, you got it. Now you've taken that position and out you go. And good luck with that. How's it going to go for you when you try to face all of the ordering problems in the world on your own because you picked that and so this idea that it's it's not so much the sin of disobedience it's the uh, rebellion might be too strong but the, the liberation that they have undertaken for themselves they have liberated themselves and said we're going to do it ourselves uh, and to me, that's the more important step that's involved here. Again, without denying the other aspects, just saying, really, what is this getting at? And so it's a matter that in taking on the role of order bringer, chief order bringers for themselves, they now have the consequences that, yes, they're left on their own to do that. And... Therefore, this world of non-order, thorns and thistles and childbearing problems and all of that, they've got to face that. And how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to bring order when you've taken it on your own to do it? Now, that's important because the rest of chapters 1 through 11 track exactly what happens when they have taken the role of order bringer onto themselves. And we see it in chapter 4 right? Cain and Abel, and they're building cities, and they're domesticating animals, and they're, they're inventing music, but they're killing each other. And you get to chapter six, and it's Hamas, violence everywhere, so that God's going to reset order. That's what the flood is, a reset button. And you finally move to chapter 12, where God says, no, the pathway to order is through relationship with me. Here's the covenant, and here we go. And this is how God is going to reestablish himself as the order bringer in relationship with people, the covenant, dwelling among them, tabernacle and temple, and moving his program forward through his chosen people.
It does get better. So uh, you mentioned that the rest of the Old Testament doesn't really deal with this chapter, but how about the writings, the non-canonical writings of Jews before Christ or after his time? What did they have to say? Well, they get into it deeply when the Hellenistic period. We don't have, of course, almost, we have almost nothing from the Persian period, except chronicles or something of that sort, which again, do very little to advance that. Uh, but by the time uh, our earliest Hellenistic Jewish literature, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Watchers, they have a fully developed mythology uh, in, in that writing. And that carries on through Dead Sea Scrolls, through Book of Jubilees, the Genesis Apocryphon, all of these Hellenistic works where they, they start to see things very differently. But again, that doesn't happen until you hit Hellenism. So what is significant in what some of them have to say? Significant. Uh, it's significant just because we get uh, an idea of their perspectives and their interpretations. If I wouldn't see them as significant for shaping how we interpret Genesis. So it's a reception history. It's not an exegesis. It doesn't okay. tell us how to read the text. It tells us how they read the text, which is intriguing historically, but it doesn't really help us to know how we should interpret it. Okay, so would you say the best of modern scholarship now on this chapter um, it needs to be familiar with what um, the ancient Jews wrote, but it's not necessarily informative, like right. you said, for um, how we I, should interpret it. Again, when, I, when I'm interpreting Old Testament text, I want to start with what I call text in context. What did the author understand and what did he effectively communicate to an audience that he believed would understand it? Israelites, Old Testament, text in context, cultural background, meanings of words. That's my first step of exegesis. But then, of course, you're going to start moving through the periods of interpretation. You'll move to later Old Testament. What did the prophets make of it? You'll move into the uh, Hellenistic period, and, and what what did they start making of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Move it into New Testament. What did they make of it? Move into the early Christian writers, and step by step, we can build that. Uh, that won't. None of that will change what the original author meant to the original audience. Right. Right. When I think within the framework of authority, my accountability is to that text in context, not okay. to the reception history. Okay. And finally, um, what is interesting to you in contemporary scholarship, um, last 10, 20, 30 years um, in regard to this chapter? What stands out to you? Well, I think uh, as it's reflected in my Lost World books, I'm very fascinated by the ways that our increasing, always increasing understanding of the ancient world can help us to uh, bring deeper understanding to the backdrop of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and as you know, if you've read my work, as you have, uh, that that doesn't mean that I think the Israelites uh, writing the Bible are somehow borrowing from Mesopotamian or Egyptian sources. I think rather that, uh, I would say it this way, uh, since the Israelites live in the ancient world, their default way of thinking is going to be more like the ancient world than it is like our default ways of thinking. Uh, that doesn't mean they buy everything that the ancient world thinks. It doesn't mean they think the same way, but the default is gonna start in the same place. And then if it moves beyond that, we can track that as the Bible talks about God's revelation to them. But the default is in the ancient world, not in our modern world. And okay. I think that's an increasingly productive way of studying uh, the biblical text. Yeah, it's, it sounds like the better part of wisdom and humility. All right. Wow, some great stuff here you've shared. So, um, Dr. Walton, thank you so much um, for joining us today. Um, we've been looking at Genesis chapter 3 with Dr. Walton, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. And so I'll have links um, for a bunch of his books below. So, Dr. Walton, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Dennis. Great conversation. 
I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. I've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.